Amen. You may be seated this evening. Nate, I probably don't need that much, I project. How you guys doing? Good? Are you glad that God made people that can sing like Sarah? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you would turn with me, well, first of all, welcome to Renovation Church, right? First week is Renovation Church. Turn with me to Mark 16. We're going to go through verses 14 through 20. And we've been talking the last week or so about the Great Commission. Mike went into Matthew and talked about this. We're going to be heading into a new series. A new series. You can give me a lot less, Matt, if you want. We're going to be heading into a new series into the book of Acts, which I think is appropriate for where we're headed right now as a church, as a brand new church starting in this area. So we're going to address this Great Commission passage in the book of Mark. Let's read it together. Afterwards, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table and rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in tongues, new tongues, they will pick up serpents in their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Amen? For every action, there's an opposite inaction, if that's a word. And I don't know if it is. If you think about it, if for, if for every action that someone takes, there's an opposite thing that they could have done or not done. So for every action, there's an opposite non-action or inaction. I think about this a lot as a criminal prosecutor in my vocation because I deal a lot with people's intent. So, you know, in every crime that someone's charged with, most of the time we have what's called a mens rea. It's a mental intent. Not only did they take an action, but there had to be some sort of mental intent behind that action for the crime to be sustained. So I think a lot about this because you can't really crawl into someone's brain and know exactly what they intend to do, but you can derive someone's intent from their actions, right? So if you think about it, if someone brings a gun to a party and, and they take this gun to this party, as they're taking the gun to the party, they also could have left it at home, right? And in the moment that an argument begins and someone takes the gun and they pull it out and point it, they also could have left a gun, well, generally in their pants or holster. No one carries holsters anymore. At the moment they point the gun and direct it towards somebody, they're making a decision to point the gun and point it at somebody, and they could have not. 
They could have made the decision to keep it down or to point it away or to keep it away. The moment somebody pulls a trigger and ends someone else's life, they made a decision to take an action, and they could have had an opposite inaction and not pulling that trigger, not taking someone's life senselessly. You can derive their intent from their actions. There was options. There was choices. They could have not acted. They could have chose to not do the things that they did, but they made each one of those decisions. I thought about that as I thought of this passage. I thought about that in relation to my own life as I hear the command of the risen Christ as he approaches the 11 and first rebukes them, right? And then says, go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. There's an opposite inaction there that we could take, that they could have taken in that moment that the resurrected Christ is appearing before these men and as he's communicating to them and compelling them and commanding them, there's an opposite inaction. I'm sure there was a temptation in the midst of the 11 at this moment to not go anywhere, to stay, to hide, to run. I want to jump back into the passage first before we address what happens here. But I want to go back to the first verse. He appeared to the eleven, and they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief. I find this interesting. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being these dudes in this moment? I mean, think about this. They've been hanging out with Jesus. They've been following him. They've heard what he has said. They've seen what he's done. They have witnessed the miracles. They've heard the messages. They've heard him talk. They know. They believe. And then they watch him go to his death. In many ways, Jesus did not, in this death, fulfill the expectations that were set up in some of their minds because their expectations were wrong about what he was going to do because what Jesus was doing in his death and his resurrection was so much greater than what they had any clue about. And Jesus reveals himself if you go up to verses 9 to 14 to Mary. He reveals himself, if we take it contextually, in its historical context, Jesus reveals himself to a woman. Can I say that this is further proof of the inerrancy of Scripture? Because there is not... A person trying to make up a document for others to believe something false in this moment, back in this day, where they would have written this story to describe the risen Lord revealing himself and having the first witness to his resurrection be Mary. She wouldn't have been a credible witness. She wouldn't have been credible in their day because she was a woman. There's no way they would have wrote that Jesus revealed himself to a woman as the first witness to his resurrection unless it happened. It's proof of the inerrancy of Scripture because it really wouldn't have been written that way if someone was trying to make it up. But he did. And they didn't believe at first. And so when Jesus approaches them in verse 14, he gets, the, he gets something out of the way. First of all, <laughs> he rebukes them. The first order of business, now that I'm back to life, is, hey, knuckleheads, <laughs> Why didn't you believe when they told you that I had risen from the dead? Didn't you hear anything I've been saying? And he rebukes the 11. Can you imagine being these guys reclining at the table? 
having a meal. And Jesus shows up and rebukes them for their unbelief. I can't imagine this moment. After he gets the rebuke out of the way, he looks to them, and he is beginning to prepare them now. As he had been preparing them so long for his death, now that he is resurrected, now that we know the power of the Holy Spirit is about to come, and the presence of God through the Holy Spirit is going to empower their lives, he's preparing them for what he has called them to do. And he's saying to them, listen to this, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Listen to what he's calling them to do. Listen to the call of these disciples as he sends this 11 and the 70 out into the world. He says, listen, you're not to stay home. You're not to go hide. You're not to go back to your families and spend time with your wives and raise your children and take them to their lacrosse games and take them to their baseball games. I'm saying go. He's asking them to take action, to move, not just go down the street, but in their going, reach the ends of the world to all creation to proclaim what? To proclaim what? The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a remarkable command that he issues to these men. He's calling them to take action, and they did. They did take action. These men begin to move. Now, it's interesting for us to think about this going, because was Jesus saying, and, and, and apparently, obviously, not apparently, obviously he didn't have any context for this, to fly over, get in an airplane, fly over top of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people that speak their language, understand their culture, and and understand their context, fly over top of all of them and go somewhere else where they don't speak their language, don't understand their culture and context, and get to the end of the world. Just get to the end of the world. That wasn't the call. The call was in their going to proclaim the gospel, but they were on their way to the end of the world as they knew it, to go into all the world and preach to all creation. As we see in the whole of Scripture, wrapped up in Matthew and in Luke, this call translates to us, followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus Christ. He's commanding us to do something, and it's to proclaim the gospel. Why? Why would we do that? Why would we go? I want you to think about what these men saw. These men saw Jesus as they followed him. They saw Jesus as he preached. They saw Jesus as he turned the water into wine, as he healed the leper, as he healed the lame, as he healed the woman with the issue of blood, as he healed the blind man by spreading mud across his eyes. They heard the words that he spoke. Then they watched him go to his death. They watched him as he went through an unfair, unlawful trial, as he was accused and he remained silent and said nothing in his, in his own defense. As he was falsely accused and falsely tried and falsely convicted and falsely sentenced to death, he remained silent. He said nothing. Why? Because he couldn't save himself and save us at the same time. They watched as he 
went through one of the most excruciating forms of execution that was on the books or on the stone in that day as he went through crucifixion. Bearing this excruciating physical pain as, as he went through this incredible death, the beating, the, the whipping, the nailing, and you've heard and know what it is that involved, is involved in crucifixion as he was hung on the cross, unable to breathe. And, and yet, what I don't even know if they completely understood at that time, not experiencing in the physical pain the most excruciating pain. As we see Jesus and his cries from the cross, as he yells out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As in that moment, the atmospheric sign of what was literally happening on the planet, it goes dark at 12 noon. Because in that moment, Jesus is experiencing not just physical pain, but a far greater excruciating experience as he becomes sin for all of us. As he, hanging suspended between heaven and earth, becomes our substitution. As in that moment, he experiences something nobody sucking oxygen on planet Earth to this day has experienced, complete separation from the presence of God. And bears the brunt of our sin. Why? So we don't have to. And then, he rises from the dead defeating death, making a way where there was no way for every single one of us. He defeats death, and he rises from the dead, and he appears to Mary, who's down there just to check on his tomb, just to look in to see if he's okay, and at first she thinks somebody stole him. Where is he? And he appears to her, she runs back, and she tells the disciples, of course, they're like, what? Are you kidding me? They don't believe? And now here it is. They're with him. They're spending time with the resurrected Christ. And he looks at them and he says, in consideration of all of that, here's what I'm asking you to do. Go. I'm leaving. And in this passage we see he's taken into heaven. Can you imagine that? If that doesn't prompt or compel some action... I don't know what will. And these guys go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And from that moment, empowered by the Holy Spirit, after Acts chapter 2, these men go out and, and they begin to preach the gospel throughout the world. And can I tell you, as we sit here today, the world has been completely transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ. What's the difference between Western civilization and the rest of the world? The gospel of Jesus Christ. These men went. Baptizing, he says. Baptized. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. You know, there's something remarkable about that, that verse in this passage. Because the reality is we, we understand theologically as we take the whole of Scripture and look at this passage, the baptism doesn't save anyone. Bernie did an incredible job um, instructing us on baptism a couple weeks ago. 
baptism is, a, is an outward sign of something that's already happened inside. And it's an identification that I am now a disciple of Jesus Christ. I belong to him, and I'm a part of this family. Can I tell you, it used to be what? You know, I'll take the whole salvation Jesus thing, but do I really have to put up with these people, right? <laughs> but that's not what it's about. There's an adding to their numbers. There is a baptism that identifies you with Jesus and with his church. And as they went out, the church grew as they baptized people in his name. Amen? That's what he's called us to do. To be ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ and baptizing them as he saves and transforms lives, including them and identifying them with the family of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that there are people's marriages in this room that have been rescued because of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's people's lives who have been taken from abject depravity and addiction and changed to a place of wholeness and walking through a productive life where they're sharing the gospel. Why? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its transforming power in their lives as they've been added to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's people in this room, I know, who have been saved from, from all sorts of addiction and alcoholism, from all sorts of, of selfishness because of the impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ as they're added to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and supported, as Elise and Tim just described that we need to do. Amen? It's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that he was our substitutionary savior that compels us to action, to go. I want to jump down to the next part of this passage quickly. As Jesus begins to talk about signs that will accompany them. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They'll cast out demons, they'll speak in tongues, they'll pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Can I just say quickly as a caveat, this is not an encouragement to go pick up snakes and drink poison, okay? This is really Jesus speaking to these 11 men about in their historical context what they're going to encounter. And what he's saying as he instructs them is, I'm going to protect you. Should you encounter deadly snakes or poison, I will be there to protect you. I will empower you, and signs will follow those who believe. And as you go out into the world, not only are people going to hear your words, men, but they're going to encounter signs as you lay hands on the sick and they're healed. And they're going to see as they've seen in me, and people will be saved. And that's exactly what happened as these men went out. He protected them. You see uh, the narratives and acts as Paul's bitten by a snake and protected as others go out and are protected. As I was looking at this passage, I couldn't help but follow, I told Mike, a little rabbit trail. I started to think, what did it look like for these men to go? Had they taken the opposite inaction, nothing would have happened. But God, in his grace, compelled them to go, to action, to move. And as they went, what would it look like? And I began to look at Mark now, I'm going to move from the authority of Scripture for a moment and just look at some historical 
context, because I, I followed this rabbit trail and I thought it was compelling to me. As you look at Mark's life, as we see it in different historical writings, many believe that this Mark, the author of this, is also John Mark and Mark the Evangelist. And, and, I, and I, took, I started reading about that because I thought it was interesting. Here's this man who we see in Acts gets in a fight with Paul and is actually sent home on this missionary journey. He's sent home, and he's, in essence, almost disgraced. There's some believe that he may have even been one who walked away at the time when Jesus said, uh, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't follow me. Remember, it says in that passage uh, that many left and walked away. And we see this man, John Mark, who is obviously restored. Many believe restored at the time in Acts when Peter, after Peter, is saved by the angels from death. As you read in Acts and as you move into Acts chapter 12, you see references to Mark. And, and it's believed that Peter began to follow, or I'm sorry, that John Mark began to follow Peter in his preaching and in his journeys. And he began to journal and he would write what it was that Peter was preaching and listening to his sermons. And he recorded the gospel of Mark. We see that Mark then goes, goes back maybe to his place of birth, but he goes out to Africa, and in North Africa, you see that Mark preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see the establishment of the church of Africa, and Mark becomes the bishop in Alexandria, and I began to read a little bit, Wikipedia is great, and some other things, but I began to read a little bit that the church in North Africa in the first and late first century into the second century began to explode. It began to move from North Africa, even down into West Africa, in Northwestern Africa, and into South Africa. And you see that the, the, one of the oldest representations of the church is the Ethiopian Coptic church, or this Coptic church that was begun from the preaching of Mark as he went. In fact, many people believe that Christianity is this European thing. But as we see from Mark specifically, his going, that the church was alive and well, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was alive and well in Africa, and Africans were sending missionaries to Europeans. There was people that believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and were saved by the power of the grace of God in Africa while the Celts were still crawling around on their hands and knees eating off the floor in Europe. We see this man, Maurice. It's one of those stories I remembered from school that I refresh myself on. In 250 AD, Maurice was born. Maurice had been saved in this North African church that was begun by Mark. He was a Christian in the days when it was not easy to be a Christian. He was a Christian leader in the days when the church was looked at as a threat because of the crumbling Roman Empire. Not only was he an acknowledged Christian leader, but he was also the commander of a legion of Roman soldiers. 6,600 men in his care. He was the leader of a Roman legion, and he was sent to what's now Switzerland, Gaul, and he was sent on a mission from Rome, and Maurice went with his 6,600 men, 
And while he was there, he was asked, he was ordered, ordered to kill and sacrifice people to pagan gods. And he refused to do it. And all of his 6,600 men refused to do it because they had all, under his leadership, become Christians. Then Maurice was asked to, to kill Christians. He was asked to execute Christians and harass Christians because the Roman Empire looked at the church as a threat in this day. And as he was sent to Gaul and in this area, he was ordered to begin to kill Christians. And Maurice and his 6,600 men who were believers saved by the grace of God said no. We're not going to kill any Christians. And the Rome didn't know what to do with him. So they, they implemented this dissemination that they would do. And what they did is they would line them up and they would kill every tenth soldier. And so they executed every tenth soldier of Maurice's legion. And then they said, we want you to go kill these Christians. And Maurice said, I'm a Christian. We're all Christians. We are not going to kill the, the Christians. And eventually, these Christians or these legion of Roman soldiers were all executed and killed. Today, the patron saint in Switzerland is an African Roman soldier named Maurice. They went, and the, and the world was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I heard an African-American pastor named Chuck Singleton from L.A. speaking of this story years ago, back when I was probably in the 90s. He was actually debating a man from the nation of Islam. And the man's contention, who was a follower of Farrakhan, had, his contention was that when African slaves were pulled from West Africa and North Africa, that Christianity was forced down their throat when they came to America. And Chuck looked at him and he recited the story of the patron saint of Switzerland as an African man because of the North African church that John Mark had started because this man was a believer and he said, when the slaves drawn from northwestern Africa, now listen, there was a lot of slaves taken from West Africa that maybe had indigenous pagan beliefs, but there was many taken from north, about 8%, and as you moved into northwestern Africa, more than that, taken in the slave trade. And, and, and Chuck began to preach, and he said, listen, as those African Americans in the United States that had been taken and were experiencing the bonds and the torture and the depravity of slavery as they used to sing the spiritual walking to church with no shoes on. I've got shoes, you've got shoes. All of God's children have shoes. As they sung that spiritual, Chuck began to preach, and I cannot mimic him in the midst of this debate, that they didn't do it because anyone forced any kind of false religion down their throat. They did it because the gospel of Jesus Christ had transformed their lives and empowered them and made it so they could bear the weight with grace of slavery. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ had transformed their lives. Ultimately, because these men went. Because in the midst of the temptation of the opposite inaction, they chose to take action. And they went. What will redemptive history read? of central New York at the turn of the millennium? 
What will redemptive history read of Syracuse, New York, Liverpool, New York, Baldwinsville, New York, Clay, New York, of the years surrounding 2013 and beyond? You have to ask yourselves, I have to ask myself, what have I seen? What have I borne witness to in my life? I didn't see the death of Jesus. I didn't see the resurrection and I didn't see him ascend to heaven. But can I tell you what I've seen? I've seen the power of the risen and resurrected Jesus Christ and his grace completely transform my life from a life that was wrapped in selfishness and deceit from a heart that was bent on doing my own thing at every turn, at every corner, whatever was going to comfort me, fulfill me, satisfy me, make me happy in that moment. And he's transformed the selfishness of this kid from Baldwinsville, New York, who's had everything he's ever needed his entire life. And he's caused me to recognize that apart from him and his substitutionary sacrifice and resurrection on my behalf, if my sin isn't nailed to him, it's nailed to me. He's caused me to see the reality that I am lost and dead and incapable of making even one decision that would glorify him on my own. And he's reached into that reality. And he's pulled me out by his grace. And I now have the ability to see something that as a human being I'm incapable to see. And that's that no matter how I feel, no matter how my subjective emotion in the midst of my life might take me up and down and all over the place, in the midst of that there is an objective truth that never changes. And I can reach outside of the subjective disaster of my emotions and I can grab a hold of something that is absolutely true and that's that Jesus died for my sin. And he rose from the dead and he defeated death so that when I die with him, I can be raised again as well. I get to reach outside of this life that is really in the scope of history, in the scope of history, filled with extravagance and opulence and anything we could ever desire. And he's allowed me to see the depravity of my own sin and the desperate need that I have for his cross and his gospel and his truth. And as I recognize that because of his grace, what does he say to us? Go. He says, go. What's the temptation for me? What's the temptation for you? I'll tell you what it is. To stay. The temptation for me is to go to work every day, to earn a paycheck, to spend time with my kids, to take them to their games, to take them to their practice. The temptation for me is to stand on the sideline at lacrosse practice and sit in that pop-up chair and not engage. 
The temptation for me is to go to my kids' karate lessons and stand at the glass and watch them on the mat and not engage the people around me. The temptation for me is to work my butt off so that someday maybe I have enough money to take a vacation and go to Disney World. And maybe when I get to a place when I can retire, I can spend the rest of my life where it's warm chasing a white ball. Garbage. That's absolute garbage. That is not what he has called us to. That's not what we're compelled to do in light of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if like these 11 men, we go long after we're gone, this place, if you go back to that slide, will never be the same. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaimed through the church of Jesus Christ, as we go and proclaim the gospel and baptize people, adding to the family of God. Amen? That's why we're doing this. That's why we're here. We put a lot of work and a lot of effort into planting Missio Church. Why in the world do we need to plant Renovation Church? Because he's called us to go. He's called us to go right here, right next door. In our going, we're leaving the city, moving into Liverpool, in Baldwinsville, in Clay. And you know what? We are going to keep going for a lifetime. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your incredible grace. We thank you for your incredible protection as we go. We trust you. We trust you because you're a good God. We trust you because you have called us to do something that's beyond ourselves. And we understand from what we know about you and what we believe about you, And that is when you call us to do something, you back your play. You are there. As we step out, you are 